welcome to season two, episode one of Straight Talking English. Same as last season, I am your host, Catherine, and a bit different this time, instead of talking you through the poetry, I am going to talk to you about Shakespeare. First half is going to be Macbeth, and second half, Romeo and Juliet. Just reminding you, I am a qualified English teacher, and sometimes I don't even know what I'm talking about. Let's jump in. Episode one, James the First, and Supernatural Witchcraft. He has 99 problems, and witches are quite a few of them, I guess. Imagine for a sec the year 15. 89. James I is still James VI of Scotland. He has not yet taken the throne of England. And he ain't a looker. He ain't a looker, I've got to say. He is not the best looking fella. He has very pale skin. He has, from his childhood, weird bendy legs because he had an attack of rickets and or basically got dropped as a baby. Apparently his tongue is too big for his mouth and was like drooling everywhere. And due to a really messed up childhood, as I'll go on to a little bit, he like was really afraid of any kind of weapon and ran away. Someone called him the dribbling bulbaside bandy legs king and up to the age of seven because of that as i say the rickets he couldn't actually walk unaided without a walking stick so he blamed satan for that the power of satan has damaged my bodily frame so 1589 he decides to get married to a beautiful princess anne of denmark he she was supposed to marry him in august they'd already had like a proxy marriage where he sends a representative she sends a representative the representative sign the thing and then that's it done i would love to send a proxy to work by the way i don't actually think that works now but august comes and goes and she ain't shown up gets to october and he's like okay turns out there'd been horrific storms that meant she couldn't sail to scotland in the meantime there's been a lot of rumors that james the first as i'll keep calling him was gay most of those rumors came from the fact he slept in the same bed as a dude and would hold parties in which he specifically stated he only wanted hot dudes to attend but he's determined to prove his masculinity he says regardless of the storms i'm gonna sail over and get her brilliant they meet up i think for the first time he spends the winter in denmark chatting away not to his new bride but to demonologists like you do on your honeymoon i'm like i'm hoping i'll go thailand but nope demonologists in denmark fair enough dude they sail back and there is disgustingly violent storms which just nearly kill him nearly wreck the ships when james gets back he is pretty damn certain that it must be witches who have cursed him this led to an incident called the north berwick witch trials and kicked off the whole witch hunting mania in the UK. A hundred thousand people across Europe were tried. Forty thousand people were executed, frequently by burning. But this is not including the people who died later of lynching, assault, and just the horrific world of being a steward and being told you're a witch and having to live on your own. We can't talk about witches in Macbeth without acknowledging this whole horrible social phenomenon so if you're a tudor what is a witch it's not cackling halloween it's not that image 
According to this guy, William West, in Elizabethan times, it was she who is deluded by a pact ma made with the devil and can bring about all manner of evil things. Witches are most likely to be girls, by the way, because girls are chatty. Apparently, we have huge libidos, which lead us to make bad decisions. And also, without the guidance of a man, a single girl could easily be persuaded by the devil. Honestly, quite surprised that I haven't been persuaded by then. I do have a partner, but he does not do very much to stop me being tempted by Satan on a daily basis. So clearly this is what's going on. This was widely believed in through Elizabeth's time, the monarch at the time that the Berwick witch trials are taking place. She had an astrologer slash magic fella called John Dee who had a magic mirror that allowed him to speak to angels. When one of her besties went on a boat trip to Portugal she got him a magic amulet and as far back as Henry VIII's time people would send each other magic rings. The idea that there was a spirit within that would jump out. Church attendance was compulsory. I'm gonna get a little bit more into that next episode when it becomes really severe but you will be going to church every weekend messages because jesus can bring about change in your life because he is real according to beliefs at the time so will the devil he is out there he is waiting to mess with you 100 percent totally real so back a little bit there'd been kind of a hole left in people's lives after catholicism stopped being the main faith in the uk so rewind back a little bit think back to primary school history henry the eighth and his six wives henry the eighth father of elizabeth the first decided to make anglicanism as in church of england don't say protestantism in your essays yes it's protestant but anglican set up the anglican church in order to be able to freely divorce his first wife and marry anne boleyn cool fair enough but catholicism at the time had this like element of magic to it the transubstantiation the belief that if you take communion, the bread and the wine are literally turned into the blood and body of Christ. The rituals, the relics, that had gone and people were like, oh, is magic not a thing now? I guess I'll believe in some other stuff. They've got this like excess of superstition rolling around. The belief that the heavens and the stars controlled your life was really, really popular. Things like what they called almanacs, which are like a primitive form of weather forecast, are super popular. And if you think about it, the sun and moon did kind of control people's lives. The moon controls the tides if you're using a boat. The sun is linked to the weather, sunrise, sunset. So once you're kind of on board of that as a regular Tudor person, you're like, well, that makes a bit of sense. Life is also very mysterious. There's a lot of things people don't know about. Generally, witch accusations, there's like a massive rise in them whenever there's been a war or a famine. And we as historians, 21st century people, we can just Google it and be like, this thing caused this famine, this thing caused this war. But Tudor people don't have that luxury. They've got to find a way to explain stuff. And witches and magic makes a lot of sense. There was also these people in each village, this role called a cunning person. 
or cunning folk. If there's someone you go to when you have a cold, in, in my case, it's my mum. I'll call her up and be like, mother, I feel ill. Please make me a cup of tea and tell me I'm pretty. Like that role was filled by these people called cunning folk. They would tell fortunes, people who had some knowledge of herbal medicine, midwives, acting as counselors. If something had gone missing, they could do a little bit of detective work and work out what had happened. You've got this like culture of they've got a familiar, they sell charms and that's fine. Problem is, James I moves down to England in 1603 and he changes his mind about this. He says, if a woman dare to cure without studying, she is a witch and must die. So if you've got some knowledge about things that make yourself feel better if you're ill, like, you know, chicken soup or having a rest or getting a cup of tea from my mum, that counts. If you do that without studying, you are a witch. James, let's get a little bit into him now. He's entered the scene. Born in 1566, he has what Borman, a historian, says a fearful nature. And James said, not only since my birth, but even as I may justly say, and while I was in my mother's belly, he was fearful and suspicious. It's not really a surprise, is it? His mum was Mary, Queen of Scots who was executed by Elizabeth I. If you watch that show on Netflix, Rain, yeah, that's her. He, his dad died when he was a couple of months old. He was kidnapped as a child. Numerous assassination attempts. Was pretty much isolated and brought up by tutors. Some of whom were crazy religious people. I mean, just to clarify there, I don't mean just regular people of faith. I mean, they delivered sermons on one why James's mum was a badden and he had to listen to them. Awesome. The Scottish government forbade contact with his mum in case there was like a rebellion or something and they teamed up. So he had this really horrific childhood which we can't blame him for being pretty messed up from it. So after his mum died the one time he did show affection is he described her death to someone else via letter as that poor lady, my mother. So somewhere down there, he didn't mind her that much. His whole life, he loved to party. Party, 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 party. Loved to go hunting. Had like a whole block of these like beagle dogs that were his favourite. He was dogged publicly throughout his life for rumours of being gay, even though he was publicly saying, well, the crime of quote unquote sodomy is very, very bad. They followed him throughout his life, partly because when his queen came to England, they pretty much lived separate lives. And as I said, the parties where everyone was a really handsome man. <laughs> He was, according to him, God's representative on earth. That made him superior to everyone else. So therefore his work is more valuable. So he doesn't have to do as much work as everyone else. He was able to go out and do hunting. And kind of creepily, 
According to the historian Matusiak, he dabbled in the dead animal's blood once the kill had been made. So picture this pale, kind of wobbly dude with a big tongue, like poking his hands around in blood. One of the things he was well blooming keen on was this idea of the body politic. The king's got two bodies, one of which is his physical form and one of which is the whole country. The country is part of his body. The other thing that he really, really loved was the act of union. He wanted to bring England and Scotland together. He said when he addressed Parliament, what God hath conjoined then, let no man separate. I am the husband and that all the whole isle is my lawful wife. Um, the isle agreed to that, that's a bit weird. I am the head and it is my body. I am the shepherd and it is my flock. I hope therefore no man will be so unreasonable as to think that I am a Christian king under the gospel, should be a polygamist and a husband to two wives. Right, right, that's a bit bit creepy, bit creepy. But it comes up again and again, this idea that England and Scotland are now married and he's, everyone's dad, wife, I don't know. Kind of strange. In terms of popular literature, this comes up again and again. This guy called Terence said, how joyful it is to acknowledge one another Britons, as it was for the brethren in the comedy which after so long time came to knowledge of one another, even as we now know one another to be Britons by all signs and tokens. Alright, cool, everyone's British now, fit, lovely. By the 1590s, his government were being a bit more progressive. They were like, okay, let's do some cool stuff. Let's map the kingdom, let's do all this. But by 1600, just before we took the British throne, he was becoming increasingly more authoritarian. It kind of comes back to this idea of the divine right of kings, which crops up quite casually when you talk context in class. But actually is a bit, bit weird for us now. There is a natural order of the world. It's called the great chain of being. Basically, God up in heaven has decided that the king is his representative and the chain goes God, king, lords, regular people. Everything, as far as we know at this point in history, is arranged in orders. So you have like a hierarchy of birds, a hierarchy of angels, and this is the hierarchy. It's weird, it's weird. A legitimate ruler is born with this quote unquote innate mystical ability. And when they are crowned, you are anointed with holy oil and that confers your magic powers. Right, James was sceptical of some of this, but he reluctantly went along with what he called touching for the king's evil. So if you had like a glandular problem, or if like, I don't know, your glands are up because you had a cold, the king would touch you on the head and you would be miraculously cured. Alright, cool, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure I believe that. But 
he had evidence, right? He'd survived all these messed up stuff in his childhood. So that must be proof that God is looking after him. So the reason I've got evidence for all of this is because King James was a massive writer and he wrote down all this stuff. So it's pretty easy to find out what he thought because he wrote it. He said, listen to me, not because I am James Stewart and can command so many thousands of men, but because God hath made me a king and a judge to judge righteous judgments. If he'd have, if he'd have submitted that with judge written three times in an essay, I would have like circled it in red and been like, can you think of a better synonym? He's no great shakes, but he does all right. That's all right. I'm going to gloss over this a little bit because I'm going to come back to it rapidly next episode. 1605, the gunpowder plot. Basically, terrorist attack by very ticked off Catholics. James survives. James is a national hero. He saved Parliament. He saved himself everyone's happy because there was this panic after the event the government had to take control of the narrative the government had to say well actually this is what happened and they released an official version in which he can paint himself however he wants it gets a bit weirder as well with the witchy witches if you're anti-king you're anti-god right so because the king is god's representative on earth so if you're anti-god you're pro-satan so you're a witch catholic priests are according to james the vilest witches and sorcerers of this earth and he later said rebellion is the sin of witchcraft so yeah it gets a little bit mixed mixed up really between like political problems religious problems and witches <laughs> like right cool he's got a bit mixed up in this before because rewind again 1597 after he has hung out in denmark with all of these demonologists he writes a book called the demonology <laughs> which is his textbook on what to do about witches <laughs> he's written as a series of conversations between this like learned person who's like I know all about it and this ignorant person who's like tell me more it's all about witches and their skill when he became king of England he republished the whole dang thing in many 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 copies because when you are officially the king you can do whatever you want in fact, he has just like this weird fascination with it in real life, as well as it being like a religious thing. He had this like morbid curiosity about the whole thing. When he first became king, he went on this like tour round England and towns put on entertainment for him. It's like, alright, cool. And the one that Oxford put on was a bit dodge. This is a translation of what one of his courtiers wrote at the time. At the time when the king was staying at Oxford, a young girl of about 18 years of age aroused the wonder of the people of Britain on account of her strange cleverness and deception, which imposed upon the astonished multitude. Whereupon James was seized with the wish to see someone so celebrated in popular report. Accordingly, she was at once brought to the king. To the great amazement of the bystanders, she lacked all sense of pain when she was stuck with pins. The strangeness of this created great excitement. Not only was this wonderful in the eyes of those who were present, but she cast out of her mouth and throat needles and pins in an, in an extraordinary fashion. The king, wondering where the numerous pins she vomited so suddenly came from, questioned her repeatedly 
repeatedly, but she remained obdurate, claiming that this happened to her miraculously and the sense of feeling taken away from her for the time being would soon, by divine providence, return to her. So, of all the things you could do in Oxford, not like go punting down the canal or like, they've got some really nice pubs, go on like a tour of the colleges. No, you went to see someone being stuck with pins. But alright, alright, it's not the only time he's got involved personally in all the witchiness. Back to the Berwick thing, the North Berwick trials, eventually 70 people were arrested in this little village which looks over the North Sea and it was awful, it was awful. This woman called Agnes Sampson was a midwife, so probably a member of the cunning folk, someone with a bit of knowledge, sleep deprived and chained to the wall of her cell by her mouth, which is honestly as disgusting as it sounds. She confessed, well under torture, confessed, I'm doing the air quotes, you can't see it, to 53 charges of witchcraft. James called her to his residence at Holyrood House to question her himself and he said what proof do you have that you are really a witch, how can I believe you? And she repeated allegedly what James said to his wife on their wedding night, word for word. I'm like, alright, alright, alright. I mean, she couldn't have said like, what time did you wake up this morning? No, it has to be the wedding night. <laughs> okay, okay. Cool, cool, cool. She was part of a conspiracy, found to include about 300 people. And some of the details of the spells are directly the ones used in Macbeth. Roasting toads to get their venom out, so chopping up a dead body, tying a cat to the dead body and chucking it in the sea. Now honestly the mental image in my head is when I'm cooking and my cat's just getting her face up in it. I'm like I don't think she's really need tying, I think if you like you just walked away and you left some food on the side and cat would have it. Like wax voodoo dolls and like swanning around in sieves which is directly quoted by the weird sisters in Macbeth. Witches also have power over thunder and lightning so the pathetic fallacy at the start of Macbeth is exactly what you would expect a witchy witch to do. But then it gets weirder. James said, God will not permit that any innocent person shall be slandered with that vile defection. So if someone says you're a witch, that makes you a witch because God would strike someone down if it was a lie. So someone says you're a witch, so you are a witch. During the witch trials, there was an eight-year-old executed and three-year-olds in prison, which makes it so so stupid. James keeps writing stuff. For where there is no right order, there reigneth all abuse, carnal liberty, enormity, sin, and Babylonical confusion. Because Macbeth broke the great chain of being. He went against every aspect of the Jacobean philosophy. Shakespeare's audience would know about witches. They would know about King James. They would know his proclamations. People are not ignorant. This is not new information. So if it's not new information, why is Shakespeare writing a play 
that basically warns about the dangers of not towing the line and not knowing your place. Well, because the people in power are worried. Even though everyone knows the philosophy, it's this like precautionary thing just in case someone doesn't. Even though you know the rule, don't take a mobile phone into your exam, people still have to say, don't take the mobile phone into your exam. It's precautionary reinforcement of the rules. I'm gonna return next episode with a bit of a closer look at Shaky Shakespeare's life. Some of the themes coming up in the play which are directly linked to the situation in Britain as we're calling it at that time and after that we'll get stuck into the meat of Macbeth the meat with a cat tied to it <laughs> I mean don't, please don't tie up a cat like that's gonna be awful have a good time I will see you next episode stay away from witches do not tie a cat do not use a sieve to sail around and I will speak to you very soon <laughs>